Turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. We'll just read this verse as our jumping off point. This is where we started last week, and we are in this study on uh, prophecies of tomorrow that explain what we're seeing today in our world. And we started this prophecy concerning culture. And we read in Matthew chapter 24, verse 37, where Jesus says, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So Jesus is making the comparison that just like it was in the days of Noah, the world is going to be like that when Jesus Christ comes again. And so we talked about what were the days of Noah like. Well, we went to Genesis 6 and verse and verse 5 described that uh, the world was wicked, that it was only evil. Continually, God looked down from heaven and saw that the thoughts of men's heart were only evil continually. We looked down in verse 11, that God looked down and saw that the earth was filled with violence. So there's wickedness, only evil continually, violence. Verse 12 said that man had corrupted his way upon the earth that means ruined or wasted people had ruined themselves but the thing that we zeroed in on was what we read about in genesis chapter 7 and verse 7 where the bible says and noah went in and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood and the point that we made was that there were only eight people that were saved or spared in the flood. And the comparison that we made was that uh, Jesus said in the days of Noah, like it was in the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. The Bible also says that uh, a little farther on that the people knew not until the flood came and took them all away. And the point that we zeroed in on was that the people as a whole, as a culture, ignored and ridiculed the warning that they had concerning judgment that was coming. The Bible says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. The Bible says that as Noah built that ark, he condemned the world. And Noah preached and Noah built for 120 years and not one single individual outside of his immediate family believed his warning and they knew not until the flood came and took them all away and so the point was is that the the people were so indifferent to what was coming that it was too late when judgment came and the heedlessness of the people in noah's day is also seems like something that is going to be duplicated in the last days of this world a day much like ours a day when ideologies like socialism can begin to overtake and completely brainwash a society and a culture. And we ask the question, and we're talking specifically because we're talking about a prophecy concerning culture. We ask the question, will socialism be the dominant political philosophy on the earth when the tribulation begins? We don't know that for sure, but it sure seems likely Because socialism is tailor-made for the Antichrist and his reign. And we looked in Revelation 13 about about the Antichrist and how um, 
really socialism, first of all, demands a one-world system of government. And the, we read in Revelation 13 how the whole world marvels and gives allegiance to the Antichrist. And we looked at how he had power over all kindreds and languages and nations. And the Bible explicitly tells us that there's going to be a one-world system of government. Revelation 13 says that, told us that all people worship the Antichrist. He's empowered by Satan. He's aided by the false prophet. He deceives the whole world. And so we look at what's happening in our world today, and we see this rush, this headlong rush to a one-world type system. And then we looked at some of the roots of socialism. We looked a little bit at the life of Karl Marx and what he was like and what he was, socialism became. I want to, just for, by introductory type thoughts before we get to where we're really going, talk a little bit about the characteristics of socialism, because it is truly a devilish ideology. And we'll look a little bit at the characteristics of socialism, but then we're going to look at where we're at today. And then thirdly, we're going to look at how should we be living in light of the things that we see and what we know. What does the Bible uh, instruct us and teach us in? And so those are the directions that we're going to go. And I'm going to try to be brief this afternoon. This afternoon we're going to have a time of prayer over our... our uh, packets that we're sending out. I'm going to show you some, I'm going to let you listen to something that Noah sent me today uh, as we've been praying for him. And then also I'm going to have Pastor Humphrey show you uh, just some update on where we're at even with, with our outreach into native villages. And just to encourage your hearts, number one, but then number two, to ask the Lord to keep doing uh, all the thing that only he can do. Amen. Let's pray and then we'll walk through this and Get on to our other things. Lord, we pray that you would use your word here. We don't ever want to rush through God's word. Lord, I pray that you just give us understanding and uh, good, solid biblical principles for how we as God's people ought to be living today and really where our focus ought to be. I pray that you'd encourage uh, God's people today with these things. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, consider some characteristics about socialism because it really is we need to understand that it is a devilish ideology the number one marxism or socialism is anti-god it is anti-god at its core Karl marx hated christianity he saw it as a source of oppression to him here's what he said religion is the opium of the people it needs to be scraped away for communism for socialism for that ideology to succeed Karl Marx said this, loyalty to the church has to be replaced by loyalty to the state. Other socialist leaders have followed that same path. It is recorded of Joseph Stalin. It is recorded of Fidel Castro. It's recorded of many others that, that each of them saw organized religion as an enemy, a competitor that needs to be controlled or eliminated. And we talk about organized religion. I mean, more specifically, we, we should need to talk about Christianity. So that organized religion is a broad umbrella. But regardless, regardless, they saw it as a competitor that needed to be controlled, as an enemy that needed to be eliminated. In the Soviet Union, one of the main slogans was, let us drive out the capitalists from the earth 
and God from the heavens. That was their mantra, their slogan, to drive out God from the heavens. And what I'm saying is that this ideology is completely incompatible with Christianity. It is of the devil. Marxism is totalitarian as well. Even though it claims to be for the people, it quickly becomes totalitarian. The fascist dictator Benito Mussolini said this, everything within the state, nothing outside of the state, nothing against the state. And basically what that means is under that, that ideology, there's never a time when dissent is allowable. There is no dissent under socialism. There's only compliance or else. I think it's very interesting that you start to see these things starting to spring up even in our country. Like, for example, when you're talking about the COVID vaccine and so on, what is the thing? It's the jab or your job. It's compliance or else. That's the reality, friend, of socialism. It's totalitarian. It always has been. Every time you look at his or societies that have been under this kind of ideology, this is how it always ends up. It's anti-God. It's totalitarian. Thirdly, it's divisive. Marxism is divisive. Marxism, socialism thrives on division, in fact. In historic Marxism, the division was promoted between classes of people, the oppressed and the oppressor. And we look at today, and today the exploited divide is often racial or it's sexual or it's gender-related somehow. They're trying to create this division and this, these divides along these lines. And it, 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 ought to, it ought to be alarming. It ought to be revealing, in fact, to us to hear and to see that the, the racist label is thrown around so much today. So much. And it's on purpose because it's meant to divide. It's meant to create this us versus them mentality. Because socialism thrives on division. There's a reason why the racist label is the go-to whenever a socialist or, uh, of our country can't figure out how to really respond to an issue. It always comes down, well, you're just racist. There's a reason for that. Well, here's the sad part about playing the race card all the time. Because if everything is racist, then nothing is racist. In other words... What I'm saying is if there's a real issue with race or bigotry, it can't really fairly be dealt with because it gets lost in the avalanche of unwarranted accusations. So if everything's racist, nothing is. That is just what socialist ideology wants, though, is division. Because, here's the thing, it creates a void that makes people want to believe the socialists empty promises and their ideology so that eventually it has complete control it's anti-god it's totalitarian it's divisive but it's also deadly the most colossal cases of political carnage in history has come from socialism and marxism and i mentioned this last week that even adolf hitler got nowhere close to the death toll that has come from socialism or Marxism. And we don't have the time to look into all of these statistics. I can show them to you. But it is estimated that 100 million deaths 
have occurred or occurred in the 20th century alone resulting from Marxism from many different countries. The death toll is staggering. It's deadly. And those are just a few of the characteristics of Marxism that make it completely incompatible with Christianity. So, secondly, let's just look at where we're at today. So we talk about what has we've seen historically and all of that, and what does all of that mean? Where are we at today? Well, I think we can draw some similarities as we look at some of the major political happenings in our country right now. And these things should indicate to us that this new political trajectory that we are on is, is so much more than just a trend. It should show us that this is really a seismic shift in the thinking and the culture of our nation. For example, let's just pick out a few. How about the destruction of monuments that we've seen as of late? You look at the news, it's become pretty common in the last couple of years to see on the news or either see on someone's live feed, uh, you know, from their Instagram or from their, you know, Facebook live to see these protests that are going on in the country over inequality and all of those things. You see groups of people surrounding, defacing, and then ultimately tearing down statues or historical monuments that they claim as offensive to them. You know what I'm talking about. Even figures of key men and women from our history, like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, are in their crosshairs, and they make up history about them to demonize and, and to justify the things that they do. Now, when we see this, when we witness this, we need to understand that what we're seeing and what we're observing is not just a bunch of rowdy young people that are tearing down statues in their zeal and in their passions. What you're witnessing is absolutely a part of a concerted effort to attack and ultimately erase the past, the history. Totalitarians are determined to wipe out everything that is not in their particular interests. Why do they want to do that? Because they want the masses to forget who they were, what they were, and where they've come from. So in order to do that, they've got to erase the people's past. They've got to get the masses to forget who and what they are so that they can be drawn into the future. Historically, this has happened in other countries. It has happened from destroying people's books. It comes from destroying people's rich culture and their history. And then what they do is they have somebody rewrite new books and invent new history. And then the next generation forgets or doesn't even know what they were. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening in our country. And what we need to realize and what we need to understand is that is the complete opposite of what the Bible teaches. It is the complete opposite from the Bible. In fact, did you know that the word remember is found 164 times in the Old Testament alone? Socialism wants you to forget, but God wants you to remember. 
Isaiah 46 and verse 9 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Remember the former things of old. What is he talking about? He's talking about all that God had done for them. And it's important to remember all that God has done because here's the reason. On the basis of past mercies of God, we can see that today His mercies are new to us every morning and His faithfulness is great. Why? Because of the things that He did for us in the past. He's always going to be the same. Biblical heroes built monuments to remind future generations of God's goodness and God's kindness to them and God's guidance in their life. Go to Joshua chapter 3 with me. Joshua chapter 3. I want you to note... Verse 14. Let's go back to verse 12. Now therefore take you twelve men out of the tribes of Israel, out of every tribe a man, and it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that came down from above, and they shall stand upon an heap. And it came to pass, when the people removed from their tents to pass over Jordan, and the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as they that bear the ark were come unto Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of the water, for Jordan overfloweth all his banks at the time of the harvest, that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up a uh, up a heap very far from the city of Adam, that is beside Zaratan. And those that came down toward the sea of the plain, even the salt sea, failed and were cut off. And the people passed over right against Jericho. And the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan. And all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. All right, so we see a miracle of God, an amazing thing that took place. God did a wonderful work, a marvelous thing in the people's eyes, okay? You get into chapter 4, and chapter 4, all of it describes what happened next. There were 12 strong men from the tribes of Israel that erected a monument on the western side of the river, and they did that on purpose. For what reason? Go to chapter 4 and look at verse 21. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over as the Lord your God did in the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were gone over it, that all the people of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that ye might fear the Lord your God forever. Why did they build a monument? So that future generations would understand and remember what God had done, and so that future generations might fear the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that's why America built the monuments that it did. 
But what I'm saying is that there's an attempt to completely erase history and history that revolves around the blessings of God. In Psalm 77, in verse 11, the Bible says, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember by thy wonders of old. I will meditate also on all thy works and talk of thy doings. Listen, the Bible itself is a tremendous history book telling the stories of, of flawed people, flawed heroes who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, who through faith worked righteousness, who through faith obtained the promises of God, who through faith quenched the violence of fire and escaped the edge of the sword, and who through faith, out of weakness, were made strong. That's what the Bible does for us. But there are revisionists who are desperately trying to scrub out anything biblical or anything Christian in our heritage, in our country, and they want to rewrite the history to fit their own secular agendas. Why? So people forget who and what we are and where we've come from and forget God. What about cancel culture? So what about that cancel culture that we hear so much about? Listen, it's not just statues and histories that are being torn down. Cancel culture is a tool that's being used to remove any and all forms of dissent. In today's society, more and more, listen, you don't get an opinion if it doesn't agree with the leftists. Any dissenters? Look at it. Pay attention. They're finding their businesses, their careers, their reputations completely destroyed because they're going against the flow of what the experts say. What are they, what's happening to them? They're pushed out of the public square. They might have been published, you know, scientists who are peer-reviewed in the past, who are experts in their field. And they've been lauded as experts in the past, but now, because of the fact that they're dissenting or they're going against the flow of what the, the mainstream is, these very same ones are being stigmatized. They're being pushed out of the public square. Their reputations are being destroyed. They're being canceled. They're being demonized. They're being labeled as racist. They're being labeled as homophobic. They're being labeled as sexist, etc., etc., etc. And what I'm saying, we could talk all day about this stuff, but what I'm saying is all of these things are linked together like a spider web. What about the dismantling of what we call the nuclear family? I would rather call it the biblical family, okay? But what about that? Marxism reaches its cold fingers into people's homes. The government wants to raise your children. The government wants to tell them what to believe. In the public schools, they're introducing the critical race theory. They're, they, they're putting ungodly sex education in schools all the way down into the, the very lowest of the grade schools. And they're trying to influence and manipulate the thinking of young children. Even, listen, to tell them what to become, what gender you should be, because there's 58 of them. It's not a joke. It's not a joke. 
Karl Marx thought that families, based on biblical Christian values, bred inequality. This is what he said. Christian homes feed on greed and systemic oppression. These types of homes need to be dismantled in order for our vision to be realized. Today, society tries to paint the picture that wives are suppressed by their husbands because of toxic masculinity. Children are suppressed by their parents because they have antiquated beliefs. And these are clusters of oppression. And clusters of oppression must be broken up. There's a hatred for biblical families in our culture. And why is that? Because the reality is that in the beginning, God created families. God created families as the glue in human society. For example, in the beginning, in the start of the human race and God establishing people in this world, God didn't reach down and create an already civilized society with cities and nations and laws and roads and structures and all of that. No, what he did was he created a family, Adam and Eve. And he said, be fruitful and multiply. When God came into this world and God took on human flesh, when the fullness of time had come and God sent His Son into this world to redeem sinful men and provide salvation, He didn't join a kingdom. He didn't win an election so that He could have some influential and political power. No, He joined a family. Socialists know this. They know that as long as a family unit remains strong, socialism cannot flourish. There's a real and ongoing attempt to subjugate the home to the government. This is not a joke. And we could talk about this stuff all day long. We could talk about other things like the redistribution of wealth that we hear so much about. Hey, it doesn't take a scholar to see that wherever that principle has been implemented in past societies, the poor have gotten poorer and the few elitists who've been assigned to redistribute all of this wealth, they themselves have become filthy rich. Equality cannot be engineered. How about the defunding of the police? That's another thing. Listen, the first step is to villainize them, to create an attitude of rebellion against authority, to villainize them, then to defund them. Listen, why, why is that going on? The purpose is to destabilize. The purpose is to create chaos and, and, and not having law and order. Why do they want that? Because, listen, if there's no law and order, and, and, and then the society can't function. So they have to create chaos in, in, in order to hope that local governments will fail and create this system of chaos. Because if they can do that, then what they can do is bring the strong arm of the government in and everything can be federalized. I don't think I'm wrong on that. There's a reason. And all of these things, I think we can see playing out. We can see all of that. We could talk about it all day long. But here's the real question. Not just to inform, not just to talk about the things that are happening today, 
But the real question is this. As God's people, as Christians, what should we do? How should we be living armed with this knowledge? You know, there's a whole bunch of people who say, oh, you're conspiracy theorists and all that. We've heard enough of that over the last year and a half or two years. And isn't it interesting that all the conspiracies are actually becoming true? No, the reality is, as God's people and as God's, as Christian people, what should we do and how should we be living armed with the knowledge that we have? Because as the Spirit of God lives inside, gives us discernment, we can kind of see through all the fluff. We can see through all the stuff that's going on and see what the real truth is. And here's where I really want to spend the rest of our time. I'll try to be brief with this. First of all, number one, And what should we do? How should we be living? Number one, you've got to know your Bible. You've got to know your Bible. You must know your Bible. Know what the Bible says about all kinds of things. But in particular, know what the Bible says about what makes society prosper. The Bible reveals several important economic principles. And Scripture confirms things that, 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 that God has implemented that help and make a society prosper. First of all, the Bible and Scripture confirms the dignity of work and that the laborer is worthy of his reward. And we don't have time to look in depth at all of these things, but Ephesians 4 and verse 28 says, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. The Bible also says and tells us that those who refuse to work, they shouldn't eat. How do you make a society work and function? Everyone's got to play a part. You can't have moochers. 2 Thessalonians 3, and verse 10 says, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. The Bible talks about and confirms and, uh, uh, um, and, and, and even it was part of God's plan that, that private property and ownership is a good thing. We read about it this morning in Exodus 22. If a man shall deliver unto his neighbor money or stuff to keep and it be stolen out of a man's house, if the thief be found, let him pay double. It's talking about private property and ownership. Listen, under socialism, you don't own anything. Under communism, you don't own anything. Everything belongs to the state. I can tell you stories of things that I've read in studying all of this, of, of people who've come from those societies and how, how it, was, it, was all of the, it was their only dream to just get out of the situation they were in. It was the thing that they longed for the most, and it cost them huge amounts of money just to get a passport, to be able to leave the country, and they couldn't leave with any of their stuff. The only thing they could leave with was a clothes on their back, and the government came to do, to do inventory checks. Over, like, uh, over an entire year. Okay, you've got all of these things, and we're doing an inventory, and these things have to be here when you leave. Otherwise, you owe the state all of their possessions. And the day that they were supposed to leave, the government came. They brought out their inventory list. They went through their belongings in their house. Everything was accounted for, and they were able to go, but only with the clothes on their back. That was it. And the government said, everything belongs to the state. That's not biblical. That's not part of 
what makes a society prosper that's not part of God's plan. The Word of God confirms private property ownership. The Word of God condemns theft and covetousness. The Word of God talks about savings and thrift and land ownership and investments. All of those things are honored in the Bible. The Bible speaks highly of law and order and law enforcement. Romans 13, 4. He is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou, that, or if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. We need to know our Bible. We need to know what the Bible says about what makes society prosper. People need to hear truth. Who are they going to hear it from if they don't hear it from God's people? Even more importantly than that, though, we need to know what our Bible says about spiritual protection for ourselves as we live in this world. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, 13. You ought to be familiar with this. The Bible says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints." The Word of God tells us what we need for spiritual protection. Take unto you the whole armor of God. Why? So that you can stand in the evil day. The real fight, friends, is not temporal. The real fight is not with just ideologies. The real fight is spiritual. And we live in, and we will continue to live in the evil day. And God wants us to stand. The victory is not going to be found in a new election. I believe we should do all that we can to resist and resist well within the system that we have. There's been too much blood that's been shed for us to just let our country go. I think we need to take a part and we need to have a part. And I think we should pray for the salvation of our nation and maybe a new election will bring a bit of reprieve. But the reality, friend, is that no matter what happens, if we're not armed with the shield of faith, if we're not armed with the Word of God and the helmet of salvation, we won't have the right protection, no matter what happens. That's the most important thing. You need to know your Bible, but secondly, you need to live your Bible. You need to live your Bible. It's one thing to have some head knowledge about some things, but that knowledge that we possess from the Word of God ought to become reality in life for us. Live your Bible. Don't compromise. We have to remain true to truth. We don't do that just by the words we say. We do it by how we live. We are to take the armor of God, but then we're to put it on. Amen? So that it becomes part of us.
we read in Ephesians 6 about the armor of God, but verse 10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Don't compromise. Take the armor of God, but put it on. Make it a part of your life. Listen, live out, live out what we say we believe. That means not being conformed to this world. Romans 12, 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies living sacrifice. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. In order to live out what we say we believe, we've got to guard against being conformed to this world. It will impact and influence our life. And I'm not talking about just trends and fashions. I'm talking about ideologies that sneak into our thinking through the different mediums that we allow into our life. Social media can have that effect. TV can have that effect. School can have that effect. We've got to be on guard and not be conformed to this world, the world's way of thinking. It blows my mind when I discover and I find out or I hear about young people who are part of Christian homes and supposedly good Christian parents who then they have their kids in a good church where the Word of God is taught and all of that, but basically coming to conclusions for themselves that things like abortion are okay. And I can totally understand, you know, where people are coming from and the arguments that they make. These are, quote, Christian kids who are coming to these conclusions for themselves that things like that are okay. How do they come to that conclusion? Well, the Word of God doesn't verify that. Something has influenced their thinking. Something has crept into their mind and into their thinking that's caused them to, to start to mull this over, and it's not weighed against the, the plumb line of truth. Something else has influenced their mind, some ideology somewhere that has convinced them that this is the way I should believe. How does that happen? Somehow we become conformed to this world and our mind is not renewed or transformed by the Word of God. We've got to live our Bible. That means not being conformed to this world. It means separating from the world. 2 Corinthians 6.17 Wherefore, come, um, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. The Word of God calls us to separation from this world. Why? Because it can corrupt our mind and our thinking. And I wish we had time to really just park here for a while, but parents, we, we need to be extra cautious. And there's some things 
listen, the Lord is showing me and revealing to me as well. Hey, you're not as diligent in this. And for your kids' sake, for your children's sake, that ought to be a burden that we bear heavy, parents. Who's going to protect them if you don't? If I don't. Their minds can be conformed. And this world wants to get in there and change the way that they think. Because, listen, there's, there's, a real, there's a real agenda to cause people to forget so the next generation has no idea what they were, what they are, what the Lord means. You think, oh, a pastor's always harping on preaching on being faithful in church. Build your life around the Lord. Build your life about, around honoring God first. You're just riding that hobby horse. No, my friend, you are absolutely wrong if you think that. Number one, God said it. But number two, your kids and their life is at stake. What you honor, they will honor. What you don't honor, they won't honor. If God's not important enough to be honored in your life, he's not going to be important to be honored in theirs. Live your Bible. Don't compromise your stand. Don't be afraid to speak truth. You got to know it first so that you can live it second. The third thing, this is maybe all the time we have for today. Got running out of time here. Thirdly, how should we live? Well, we need to really resolve to follow Christ and not just admire Christ. But what do you mean by that? Well, Jesus said in John 15 and verse 19, If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. And I'm going somewhere with that. But let me ask you something here. If we are not of this world but chosen out of this world by Christ, shouldn't then everything about us be geared toward Him and His kingdom and His control? Shouldn't it be? Shouldn't our focus and all that we are be yielded to our King if He has chosen us out of this world and we're not of this world? Listen, if that's true, it is God and not the government and not ourselves that should order our lives. Amen? If we're going to persevere and we're going to hold the line and we're going to stay true and we're going to live in this ungodly world, if we are going to persevere in an increasingly socialist culture, you and I are going to have to decide 
whether or not we are going to be true Christ followers or whether or not we're just going to be Christ admirers. Because this life of ease that we're used to living is not going to last. And we're going to come face to face with real choices, hard choices. Am I going to obey God rather than men? Am I going to follow Christ truly? Or I just say I'm a Christian and I admire Christ. One commentator said this, and I thought it was really good. The admirer never makes any sacrifices. He always plays it safe. Though in words and phrases and songs, he is inexhaustible about how he praises Christ, yet he renounces nothing. He will not reconstruct his life and will not let his life express what he supposedly admires. Not so for the true follower of Christ. No, no. The follower aspires with all of his strength to be exactly what he admires. In other words, the admirer and not the true Christ follower, he's not going to make any sacrifice. But the true Christ follower is willing to suffer for the cause of Christ so that Christ can reap the reward of his suffering. The true follower wants to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, this is what Jesus is talking about when he uh, explains the cost of discipleship. Look with me in Luke chapter 14. I'm almost done here. Luke chapter 14 and verse 26. Jesus said, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. If you skip down to verse 33, Jesus says, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Discipleship costs something. It costs something. And the cost of that, we may not even understand and know exactly now, but the one who is a true follower of Christ is going to be willing to forsake all to follow Christ. And friend, there is no getting around this. There's no getting around this. Nor should we want to get around it. I think Christianity is pretty weak in America We've lived a life of ease. We've not been called on to make sacrifices, real sacrifices for Christ. But we shouldn't want to get around this. True discipleship, true discipleship, you can trace uh, uh, all the way back through history. People who were, starting with the, the apostles and the first generation of Christians and all throughout history, uh, people that paid a dear price to follow Christ, but they would not renounce it. They were willing to sacrifice, and that discipleship has brought untold blessings to countless generations of Christians over the last 2,000 years, but it never came easy. It came at a cost. The truth of the matter is, sooner or later, it's going to be our turn. And we're here for such a time as this. It's going to become increasingly difficult to live that normal life that we are used to. And you hear 
the talk of it. We want to go back to normal. That life of ease. I'm not saying that it's fun or even that I, that I want to walk through that either, but we need to come to grips with the reality and prepare our hearts and renew our minds with God's Word and by God's grace in the evil day still stand and not be influenced by the world and its ideologies. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're to live in this present world, denying ungodliness and worldly lust. Live soberly, live righteously, live godly in this present evil day, and our focus ought to be looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, I think we should fight for our country. But no matter what happens, we need to remember, number one, this world is not my home. Number two, we need to remember that I have a better country. Number three, we need to remember that I serve the sovereign king. And I'm going to obey God rather than men. We need to, number four, know and remember that it's his kingdom that I should be seeking after first. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. I can be involved in the process, but my main thing and my most important thing first is to seek after the kingdom of God. But then to remember that He's equipped me to be able to live here and to truly be His disciple. He's given me His armor to put on so that I can stand in the evil day and quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And all of that while I look for and wait for His blessed return. That ought to encourage us. So we look at the world and it's like, man, I can see it all. It's pretty clear. It's getting pretty bad. What do I do? Well, I need to know what the Bible teaches. I need to be armed with it. I need to live it. And I need to determine that I'm going to be a follower of Christ no matter what happens because He's equipped me to live here in this ungodly world right now for such a time as this. And I'm waiting for the return of my Lord. Amen? Yeah, we can get passionate. And there's nothing wrong with being passionate. We can get fearful. There is something wrong with being fearful. But let's ask the Lord to help us to see things for what they are but then be determined. This world's not my home. My main focus is the kingdom of God. I'll do what I can do, but I'm seeking first the Lord and His righteousness. And people need to hear the truth. This world is full of people that are lost. They need true Christians who are willing to stand, who are willing to be true to true. Amen? We'll talk about some other things in the coming weeks prophecies that kind of give us a hint of what's happening right now. But each of those should compel us to be living a certain way. 
in this evil day. And my prayer is that God would equip us and encourage us and help us. Amen. Bible talks about a great falling away. When the, before the Antichrist comes, there's going to be a great falling away. That means Christian people, saved people, falling away from the truth, compromising. May the Lord help us not to ever be that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We love you today. Lord, help us to be strong in the power of your might, armed with the armor of God to withstand the fiery darts, to quench the fiery darts of the wicked, to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand with our loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, and above all, taking that shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We can live victoriously. Why are we commanded to stand? Well, it's not just for our own benefit. The Lord could take us out of here. But there are people, souls, lost and dying. And the judgment of God is coming, but He's giving men an opportunity to repent. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that in all of this that's happening in the world, it's plunging headlong into darkness. God's will is going to be accomplished in this world. But right now is still a time of grace, an opportunity for people to be saved. And that must be our focus as God's people, as a New Testament church, more important than the temporal things. So Lord, help us to keep the balance in all of that, but to have clear eyes, a spiritual focus. And Lord, I know that you'll protect God's people and give us the grace to live in a way that's pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.